0: Now, if you have your scriptures, open them to uh, the passage we'll be looking at today, which is uh, starts, in, and it, it's printed in your bulletin, too. So if you want to look uh, there, you can. Um, or if you have uh, a Bible with you, you can look at uh, Genesis chapter 8. And what we're going to do is start in verse 20, and we're going to read to uh, verse 17. It's kind of a long reading, but now... Uh, Pay attention and listen to the flow of this story. This is after the flood. And uh, I I know you're going to really uh, appreciate this this morning as uh, it it should make, I think, a significant impact on us all. So now hear God's word. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the, of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the, on the ground, all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the field. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You know, uh, we, we're not going to talk about all the particulars of the flood itself, which you find uh, in the chapters between 6 and uh, p- portions of, of 7 and 6 and, and 8. We're not going to look at all the details of the flood uh, itself. Uh, But I would encourage you to read it, and and it's not mythology. The reason there's so much specificity is because it was a real event. Whether it was a local uh, flood or a global flood, we don't know. There's no proof that it was a global flood, and there's no proof that it was only a regional flood. That's not the point of the story, as I've been telling you, that Genesis is not just simply recording history. It's not historiographic, it is... Telling us not how things happened, but why they happened. Why God created. Who created God? Why did he create? Well, he made man in his own image and created a world of goodness and beauty. And why are we in the condition we are? Why is there suffering and evil in the world? Well, it's because we rebelled against God, and we still do till this day. And so God judges the earth with this flood. And he has Noah build an ark. It was gigantic. The specifications are in there if you care to look at it. And he had him take all the animals that were known to him in that world and put them in the ark uh, two by two. And some of them there were seven and, and so on. And after the flood abates, a year later, after the flood finally comes down and the ark rests, And Moses sends out the birds, the raven, and the doves. You all know the story. And the dove comes back with the olive leaf. He waits another seven days, which is a signal of Sabbath rest. And then they depart from the ark. And then we have this right here that tells us what happened, this covenant that God made. Now, in theology, if you get a a good systematic theology, or even if you have a study Bible or something, uh, it'll call this covenant, this is the first time the word berit is, is used, the covenant, first time it's explicitly used in Scripture. This covenant that God made with Noah, we call the Noahic covenant. In fact, it's in your sermon. But in reality, this is more than a covenant with Noah. This is a covenant that God made with Noah and all creation. It is a universal covenant with creation Noah being the representative that God had preserved he and his family Shem, Ham, Japheth and their wives so there were eight people that were rescued from this flood on the ark and God makes the covenant with them and everything else everything the weather the mountains the seeds the plants the animals with his creation never again will He judge and bring destruction upon His creation until the end of time, the consummation of all things. And so this beautiful promise is there. And the ark is the symbol of God's saving power in the midst of judgment. And we talked a lot about that the past two weeks, how Jesus is the fulfillment of that ark. Listen to what John Calvin said. I I just blew me away. John Calvin refers in his commentary in Genesis and in the Institutes of Christian Religion, he actually refers to the ark, listen to this, as a sepulcher, as a grave. And he says this, the most severe contest of all for Noah and his family was to bid farewell to the world, to renounce society, and to bury himself in the ark to seek a new mode of life in the abyss of death. He is commanded to forsake the world that he may live in a grave which he had previously laboriously digged for himself for more than a hundred years. You see the pattern that Calvin recognized is that Moses went into the, I mean, uh, Noah, excuse me, went into the ark like a grave. We're going to go into the grave, but in that death, the death of the flood, the death of judgment, we are going to find life because God is going to preserve us inside that ark. The same way that in order to become a Christian, you must die. Metaphorically speaking, you must your old life must die and a new life must come forth out of the grave. That's what we call the new birth. And so God is giving us right away for the new creation. Now, he starts everything over again. And again, if you read theological books, uh, they'll talk about the, uh, the the primordial age and the post-flood age, pre, pre-flood, post-age age Uh, a post-flood age, and this age that we're living in today is a post-flood age. Nothing is the same. The old world is gone, and we are living in what we call a new creation. Okay? Everybody with me? Okay, judgment came on the old world, and now everything that we know, everything we see, everything around us is in a context of new creation, And God puts forth a pattern that is here embedded in this new creation that is essential for it. Because for weeks I've been telling you that your job, my job as a Christian, the reason why God doesn't save you and then zip you go up to heaven is because He he wants us to stay here. He wants us to be salt and light. He wants us to serve our community. He wants us to especially serve those who are of the household of faith. We're to to have a familial relationship with people that we find in church. And then we are also, as a church, as a body of people, we're to go out into the world And be salt and light to that world, like Noah was. We're to call people to repentance. You know, this world is going to end. There's going to be some day it's all going to come. Even if it goes for another so many billions of years and the sun burns out, which it eventually will do, there's going to be an end. Just because it's far away doesn't mean it's not going to happen. But we are so myopic. We live just in the moment. We think only for today. And God is always telling us, think, yes, keep your feet planted for today. You've got to be of earthly good, for goodness sakes. You don't want to be up in the clouds all the time. But at the same time, if you as a Christian, as a believer, if you don't have one eye on eternity, your life here will be miserable. We, we have to live in the context of eternity. Otherwise, the Bible, and I'll be the first to admit it, overpromises and underperforms and frankly it does not overpromise and underperform but it does ask us to look beyond the end of our life instead of trying to get everything right now i got to have it all now heaven now money now uh, health now everything health wealth prosperity perfect marriage perfect job perfect life it's all got to come now and if i don't get it then something must be wrong well something is wrong our world is in a very bad place And without us, folks, it is going to go down. We have got to be the people, with the church, the ones who step up and start acting like Christians. Let our Christianity actually be real instead of fake. Amen? (laughs) All right. Okay, here we go. Look at the pattern he lays. This is the reason why I can get up here and for these past few minutes encourage you to invest deeply in this world because we are going to live in this world, not heaven. Heaven is not our home. That's bumper sticker theology. Earth is our home. Heaven is a waiting place until we come back. God is going to bring heaven down to earth in New Jerusalem, chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. So this is our home. We, we have to, d- to invest deeply in this world, in the people of our church and in our world beyond, especially people that don't believe like us, that maybe not even like us. And that's hard. It's not easy. I'm not going to tell you it's easy. But it is the call that's on you to be a Christian is to do that. So, let's see what what it has to say. We need to go back into the world as Noah did. To form, to fill, to replenish, to redeem, to recreate. Not to live in fear. I've told you, week by week, fear is antithetical to Christianity and to believing in faith. We do not need to be afraid. Not of who's elected president, not who, how many Supreme Court justices are on our side, not who controls Congress, not what ISIS is doing, not what Putin is doing, not what Kim Jong Un is doing. While all of those things are important, we can't just live in a bubble and pretend that you know, like uh, uh, you know, we do this. What is it? Uh, la, la 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 la. You know, we can't. That's not what we're to do. We're to be engaged. But we're not to fear. We're not to wring our hands. We're not to be afraid of everything and everyone. all oh, the culture is going down the tubes. Our culture is totally and completely controlled by religion. Make no mistake. Paul was too. So was Noah's world. Religion has always been there to compete with true Christianity. And so you've got to be aware of those things so that you can live. Let's go quickly through this. It's wonderful. He gives us three things I think that that are helpful. Now there's more but I picked these three cuz it just rang true with me. First the priority of worship. We're going to look at the priority of worship, then the shape or the form that worship takes. Its priority, then its shape, its form. What does worship look like for Noah? What did it was it to look like for Israel, remember they're out on the plains of Moab with Moses and he's telling them these stories so that they will know how they're to live in the midst of a land where every direction there were enemies all around it. Okay, the form or the shape of worship and finally the promise or what I'm going to call the seal of worship, the guarantee of worship, the promise of worship. So let's go into this quickly and look first at at the priority of worship. Look at verses 20 through 22. Noah built an altar. The first thing he did when he stepped off of the ark uh, was to build an altar. Now you see altars being built throughout the Old Testament and uh, they are significant. They are the origination point of where people would interact, interface with God was at an altar then they built a tabernacle to enclose the altar then they built a temple to enclose the altar and then we get Christmas and God sends his son to be our holy temple to be our tabernacle to be the altar upon which judgment is executed wow All right. Noah built an offering and he offered burnt offering. You can look at the details. His first thought, his first act after this catastrophe was worship, thankfulness, devotion, dedication, atonement. In other words, he was making an offering for sin. The world had just been destroyed and he had the presence of mind to say, this is not because God is mean or unfair. This is what we deserved. He humbled himself. He got down on his knees and he humbled himself. And I cannot tell you, I had a friend of mine, a pastor in Florida, who left the ministry and went to go teach in seminary. He couldn't stand pastoring in church anymore. And I called him one day because I wanted to go help him. He was uh, uh, teaching in a seminary in in Cairo, Egypt. And I wanted to go and do, you know, occasionally go and and teach there in the seminary. And I said, why did you leave church? He said, Chuck, I got so tired of the hand-holding and the whining. Now, nobody at Christ the King does that, so I couldn't relate. You know know what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm the chief hat holder and whiner and crier. I mean, I'm always crying and complaining to God. But something bad comes into our life and you know what the first thing we think about? Why? Why me? I mean, I deserved better. I didn't deserve this. How do you know what you deserve? Really? We don't know. So let's... Think of what, what is our priority. Our priority is worship. And I have told you this. I've been here 16 years, folks, and I have told all of you this. Plus, every time we bring a little kid up here for their first communion, I tell them that right to their face. And I hope that some of the little guys will remember what I tell them. Run to Jesus, run, run, run! I don't care what happens. I don't care how bad you sin. I don't work. I care where sin takes you or what kind of a gutter you find yourself in. I don't care what happens. What kind of suffering comes into your life? Run to Him. Don't turn away from Him for goodness' sakes. What? Turn to Him. Go to Him. Tell him your complaints. That's what the whole book of Psalms is a bunch of complaints and laments. God, why is this happening? Help me, help me, help me. You've got to be able to turn to him. And when people in the scripture suffer like Job, Job was very upset about his affliction. And it was horrible and it was unfair. It was evil what happened to him. He did not deserve it. And that should be good news to all of us that there is, an, there is the truth that innocent people suffer. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean that something, you've done something bad. We live in a world that deserves judgment and God judged it. Now He's not going to judge it anymore. And He's calling us to repent, to come to Him, to run to Jesus, especially when we don't understand, especially when we're hurting, especially when we're suffering. Instead of getting mad at Him and shaking our fist, I'm begging you. Run to him. Tell him, I don't understand, but I'm not leaving you until you bless me. Like Jacob, who was wrestling with the angel, and he said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And they wrestled all night. Wow. Wow. That's the act of worship. Worship should be preeminent. Another thing, very quickly I want to tell you. Worship is not just Sunday morning. Sunday morning is just the culmination of a week of worship when God has called us together one day in seven that we can gather together and look around and see our fellow sufferers where we can sing our songs, where we can eat and drink the body and blood of our Savior, where we can hold hands with people around us who we know have our back, where we can go and see others who are suffering and be a comfort and a help to them, where we can get our strength back. And He does it one day in seven because He knows if He went eight days, we'd fall apart. And those of you that miss church or come willy-nilly, you know what that's like. I mean, We go down into the pit on day eight. And then stretch it out a few months. I've done that. I went 10 years without going to church. I was so mad at God. Almost cost me my marriage, my children, and everything else. Run to Jesus. And look at what the motive is. Look at verse 21, 821. God smelled, this is a a metaphor for his acceptance of the sacrifice. He smelled the pleasing aroma and he said in his heart, Never Again. Now let me tell you something. There's nothing special about that smoke. It was just an animal burning and it, you know, it probably did smell like a barbecue, probably smelled pretty good. But that's not why God accepted it. I told you this last week, I, I pled with you with all of my strength that when you see a God of wrath here, you're not seeing the whole picture Because in chapter 6 and here again in chapter 8, God says something about Himself that you and I should know. He is, first of all, a God of love, a God of compassion, a God of grace, a God of mercy, not a God of wrath. And all you hear about, oh, look how mean He was. Really? You're not thinking. You're not thinking right when you think that. We can watch the TV, for goodness sakes, folks. We see what ISIS or some other crazy group does, or the the, the guy that goes into a Walmart and kills 22 people, and we say, judgment, we want justice, we want judgment. Well, of course. But for goodness sakes, are you nothing but wrath because you feel that? God's righteous and good, and he saw his world that he had created good going completely the other way. And he stopped it. And what's remarkable is he saved eight people. We should be clicking our heels and having a party and throwing confetti that he saved eight people. But instead we want to complain, we want to moan, we want to cry. and Oh, it's so bad, everything's so bad. Why does God let the world go on? I don't know, maybe he's waiting for you to go do something. Okay, enough scolding. Listen to this. This is where we've got, to, we've got to sink our anchor down deep in this soil, folks. Listen. God's heart at the time of the flood is full of pain. Said it in chapter 6. Said it in chapter 8. God's heart at the time of the flood is full of pain because of people's sin. Human sin inflicts pain on God's heart. Why? Only because he graciously humbles himself to become fully involved with humanity and now that pain and indignation is assuaged by an atoning sacrifice. God smelled that aroma from that sacrifice that Noah gave because it was a priority for for Noah and Noah was admitting we deserved this flood but I'm appealing to your heart of love and mercy. And God breathed it in and said yes, never again. Never again. This is a God you can run to in your pain and in your heartache. And when you don't understand, which for many of us is most of the time, and we can go to Him and we know that He will embrace us and He will take us in close and He will not let us go. God's heart of love and faithfulness and goodness, it's not fear that should ever motivate you and I, those of us that can look at a cross and see what Jesus Christ did for each of us bore the wrath, bore the judgment so that we could stand free and clear. And the gratitude, the motive for all of that, the motive for our worship should bubble up and flow out of us. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes we're acting right just because we you know, we feel like something, something bad's going to happen and it might. But you've got to work at letting the motive of God's love be what What moves you? Same way any parent would want. You don't want your kids just to obey you because they're afraid of you, do you? Some of you are saying, yes, I would like them to obey me for any reason. (laughs) No, I mean, ultimately, we want them to obey us because they know they're safe with us. We want to share love with somebody, some person in our life because we know they want us for us, not because we have lots of money or that we're gorgeous and good-looking like me. All right, I give up. No, we want somebody to love us for us, just for us. And God wants us to love him for him, not for what we're going to get out of him. And that takes us to the form of worship. Look at verses 1 through 7. This is amazing. He is telling us in these verses the world is not going to ever be destroyed again. I'm going to make sure the world continues. There are going to be disasters. There will be floods, but they're going to be localized. I'm going to limit. I'm going to bring my hand of grace down instead of letting the evil run wild and roughshod over all humanity instead of allowing the zombie apocalypse to take over. You know, there's all these end-of-the-world movies. I love watching them. I mean, they're fun to watch. The whole world goes, you know, down. And uh, you watch and you say, wow, that's awful. I hope that didn't happen to me. But God is saying, look, everything's going to go, seed time, harvest, cold, winter, seasons. I'm going to make sure that humanity survives because I have a purpose. I have an an original purpose that I gave to Adam and Eve. They messed it up, and I'm bringing it back again because I'm not going to give up on you. You know the other bumper sticker theology, you know what bumper sticker theology is? It's bad theology. But there's a bumper sticker out there that says God is my co-pilot. Right? That's bumper sticker theology. There's another one. When you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. And if I asked you all to quote the fourth, uh, answer to the fourth question in the Westminster Catechism, none of you could do it. But you know the bumper sticker theology, right? Come on. Come on. All right, enough of that. You get the picture though, right? And when you get to the end of your rope, hang on, you know, for dear life. No, God has, has a plan and that plan is, is to cover the world with His glory and His goodness. Never has changed since the first chapter of Genesis. Never has changed. The way it's going to come about is even going to be better than His original plan, if you can believe that. Come next week to uh, Sunday school and we can talk about all these Really interesting big words like infralapsarian and supralapsarian. Hey Hugo, you like that buddy? Yeah, we love those words, right? Yeah, because we can sound smart. Yeah, even though we know we're not. Right. Learn enough good vocabulary and you can dazzle people. All right, so he's going to complete his purpose. Look at at what he says to Noah. This is in the context of, of worship. He blessed Noah, and this is verses 1 and 7. 1 and 7. So it's called an inclusio, and everything in the middle is where, where we're going with this. But verses 1 and 7. He blessed Noah and his sons. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, increase greatly. Do you see what he's doing? He's recapitulating or re, uh, restating the original mandate he gave Adam and Eve. He's saying, now, go and fill the earth. They messed up. Now you go, fill the earth. Where do you remember hearing that again? Matthew chapter 28. Jesus tells his disciples, go and fill the earth. Go make disciples. Go make More of my image. Go. Don't stay hunkered down, hunkering and bunkering and waiting for the end. Don't cloister into your little churches, into your little conclaves and afraid of everything. Oh my gosh, can we peek out, you know, and see, is it safe out there? Should we go into the world? Oh no, oh no. No, we go. At our own expense. We go get messy with all the messy people. You came to church today and the most messed up person in your church is your pastor. You don't believe it, but I am. You can ask some of the journey guys. Better yet, don't ask them. I mean, we're messed up, right? We don't come here because we're all trying to, you know, we're good. No, we come here because we're messed up and we need each other. For goodness sakes. He blessed knowing His Son. Be fruitful, multiply. So we're, we're to go. What is the form of worship? It's going. Getting out into the world. Making it a better place. You know, learning to play a, a musical instrument, learning to paint, uh, uh, being uh, becoming a doctor, a lawyer, nuclear scientist, uh, whatever, uh, joining the service, uh, uh, becoming a, maybe you're called to be a pastor. I don't know. You must be out of your mind, but good, be a pastor. Uh, any number of things. Serve your family at home. I don't know, but everywhere you go, it's all worship to God. Everything you do, do it as unto the Lord. Do you see it? Your work can become worship. Your play, your recreation, your barbecue tomorrow. Everything is great if you do it unto Him and you look to Him. We're going to go out into the world, not to hide out and become some little subculture. We're to go out and influence the culture, salt and light. And we're to do it in the presence of sin. Look at verses 2 and 3. It's a little enigmatic, but as you get further out into the Bible, you start to see that it's going to be done in the presence of sin. We're going to go out into the world and we're going to be in the presence of sin. He says the fear and the dread of you from the creation is going to be upon you. No longer this harmonious relationship with creation and with others. There's going to be fear and dread alienation. And we experience that every day. Sometimes in our own marriages we experience alienation. With our own children we experience alienation. At work and elsewhere. But we are going to go into the world. This is the form and shape of worship. We're to go out there into the world and we're to do it in the presence of sin. It's still here and we still got to fight that fight. The good fight of faith actually. And then he gives us another principle, the form of worship. And this is at the very center. If, you, if I, I was going to show you all the chiasm this morning. We just don't have time. But the very center of this is this whole business about blood. You know, Christianity has been accused, and rightly so, that it's a bloody religion. Oh, you guys talk about blood and Jesus on the cross and all that blood. And, and there's just blood everywhere and blood killing animals and blood and blood and blood. And blood. And he explains it here. He gives us the pattern. He gives us the principle. The reason God uses blood is because we know what blood is. Right? You don't have to be a doctor to know what blood is. Blood is your life. You take blood away, and what do you have left? A corpse. Blood is the life, and God is saying something that is so profound. Listen to what Dr. Kidner says in his little commentary. It's, just, it's brilliant. I can't improve on this stuff. That's why I give you these quotes. Listen. God limits man's right over creation. In other words, he says, now there's going to be a limit. I gave you dominion, but now you still have dominion, but now it's not going to be like that. You're not going to be able to call the lion pride over to come and help you do your work in creation. They're going to hate you and stay away from you. He limits man's right over God's creatures. Their life belonged to God. When they offer sacrifice, he's telling us, when we offer a sacrifice, an animal, we bring a lamb, a little cute lamb or something, and we're going to offer it as a sacrifice as they did in the Old Testament. That animal may belong to them, but its life belongs to God. Do you see this principle that he's laying down, which is carried out throughout the Old Testament and into the new. The body, sure, that belongs to you, Mr. Farmer, Mr. Rancher. But the life of that animal belongs to me. And I will hold you responsible for the life. I will even hold the animals. This is a mystery. I couldn't find anybody that knows the answer to this. Why he's even holding the animals responsible for predation. Wow. That's mind-blowing. Since it belonged to God, it could... Be seen. You see, the reason he did this, let me just paraphrase uh, Dr. Kidner. What Kidner is saying is if we think that the animal or the sacrifice belongs to us and we bring it to the altar and not only its flesh but its life belongs to us, then we are giving something to God. Are you with me? Life for life. But when God puts this verse 4 in here, He blows our minds and He says, No, no, no. You're bringing me nothing. You're bringing me the carcass. It's life is mine. Therefore, what is on that altar is mine. And I'm making a sacrifice for you. I'm atoning for you. I am covering your sin with the life of this innocent. I'm doing it for you. You're not doing anything for me. I'm making peace with you. I'm atoning for your wrongdoing. Why? Because of the sanctity of all life. Life. He gave life, not only to Adam and Eve, but to every living thing. All the creatures, He breathed into Him His breath. They lived by the life of God. And so what is the promise of worship? I don't have time to to talk too much about it, but it's this whole section, 8 through 17, about the rainbow. And and if you have questions, come to Sunday School next week. We can talk about the rainbow. But let me say just a couple things. Even the rainbow narrative is set up in this amazing chiastic, what we call a chiasm, structure, so that the, the very heart of it, is, is clearly seen in what God says. And he says in the, the first verse of this structure, verse 9, and then again at 17, he frames it like a frame. And he says in 9.17, I myself, in, in fact, in Hebrew it's emphatic. In your English Bible it doesn't. But in Hebrew it says, I, me, myself. I myself will establish my covenant with you. And here's what it's going to be, all humanity, look, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, you know Ham's going to get cursed, Canaan, his son, will be cursed because of what Ham does, we'll talk about that later, and he makes his covenant with all creation, every living creature, and then he says, for all time, he repeats it over and over, never again, for all generations, an everlasting covenant. Throughout this section, right in the middle, he says, never again, never again. My covenant with all creation. And then he says this remarkable thing. And here's what i close. But if you, if you catch this, if you get it, and you put it down into your heart, it can change the way you look at everything else in this world. And that's this whole thing about the rainbow. You see, in Hebrew, it doesn't say Rainbow. He says, my bow I will put in the heavens. My bow. And he uses a very rare word in Hebrew. It's a war bow. It's the kind of bow that warriors carry. Do you know what I'm talking about, bow and arrow? It's not just to shoot little animals, you know, so you can eat them. It's a war bow. A bow you use to fight who? Your enemies. Listen to Dr. Walkie and his commentary. Amazing. This is amazing. The Hebrew reads, simply bow, not rainbow, a battle weapon. In the ancient Near East mythologies, listen to the world that Moses was writing in. In the ancient Near East mythology, stars in the shape of a bow were associated with the hostility of the gods. In other words, when people looked up and they saw these constellations with a bow drawn, it was the gods who were, who were threatening these puny humans that lived on earth, right? In ancient Near East mythology, the stars in the shape of a bow were associated with the hostility of the gods. Here, here, and only here, is the warrior bow's, is a warrior's bow hung up like on a wall? You know, hang, it had a hook, and he would take it and hang it up, pointed away from the earth. The relaxed or the unstrung bow stretches from heaven, from horizon to horizon, from earth. To heaven, reminding God of His commitment that judgment, real judgment, will never strike you again. The flood will never come again. The next time judgment will strike, it will strike me. It's pointed at me. My covenant with you is one in which I promise the whole creation, I will not let you go down. I will take the judgment for you. And we know that the flood of God's wrath, the flood of judgment Jesus bore for us on our behalf. He took the spear, the arrow, the stroke of God's judgment for us. That is the heart of our gospel, folks, what we live and breathe by. And the Apostle Paul picks this up in many places, but I'm only going to give you one for lack of time. Colossians chapter 1. Having made peace, took the bow, unstrung it, hung it up, never again. Having made peace through the blood, the life Of Jesus on His cross. By Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him I say. Whether, listen, things on earth or things in heaven. All things have been reconciled by what? By Jesus' blood. His very life. For us. As us taking our place on the cross. And Moses, brilliantly, without even knowing what he's doing, he's just laying out a pattern for worship, a form of worship, so that when we come in a moment and take Holy Communion, you know what you're putting in your mouth. You're eating the life of God Almighty, His Son Jesus, so that judgment is averted, taken away. It's the greatest thing we do, folks. Apart from baptism, it's the greatest thing we do in our church. Will you trust Him? That's, he wants you to come and trust, trust this God. What do you have to fear? He absolutely loves you and took the stroke of death in Himself for you. Let's pray. Father, uh, I don't know that we'll ever get our heads around this, and I want to pray that You will help us to stop being afraid and whining and complaining about everything in our lives when there's so much richness around us in every direction we look. Help us, Father, and strengthen us to worship you. First and foremost, lay our lives at your feet. I will go where you say. I will do what you say. I lay the sword of my life at your feet. Command me, whatever, I completely submit to you, and I pray that you'll do that in our hearts today. And for those who may not know you yet, I pray, Father, you will regenerate their hearts so that they can believe and embrace the gospel. Please do that, we ask in his name. Amen.